Hello and good afternoon. I'm Prema Gurunathan. I'm Managing Director of Upstream. For those of you who haven't been for one of our events before, haven't heard of us, uh, we're a partnership between Imperial College London and Hammersmith Fulham uh, Council. And what it says on the cookie tin is that it's our uh, mission to turn this borough into a leading destination for the science, tech and creative industries and to help trans White City, which is on the northern bit of this very long, thin and bur borough, for those of you who are not Londoners, to turn White City uh, at its tip into an innovation district. I am delighted this afternoon to welcome Dana Tobak, who is CEO of Hyperoptic, CEO and co-founder of Hyperoptic. And Hyperoptic is a UK fibre to the building provider with over 100,000 homes live or in progress across 12 UK cities, including our fine borough. And it was the first company to offer 1,000 uh, megabytes per second downloads speeds in the UK, and its actions forced industry giants to stand up and really up their own game. Um, today, the company is 600 employees strong, and it has been named the best super fast broadband for the past six years running and has been listed in the 2020 Sunday Times Sage Tech Track 100 as one of the fastest growing companies in the UK for consecutive last four years. Um, it's clearly seen as a good bet. So it's been had investment from George Soros's Quantum Strategy Fund, uh, 100 million from a consortium of major European banks about three years ago. And just last autumn, KKR, which is a private equity firm, a majority stake in the company. So in this fireside, we're going to explore how Dana got to where she is, the challenges she's faced, and the lessons she's learned along the way. Um, a brief word about Dana, and it's quite brief because we can't actually find very much about you. So she's US born, educated at MIT and Tufts, and before Hyperoptic, she worked in various roles at Sapient, O2, and Oracle, and in recognition for her role uh, for pioneering the ship to Gigabyte Britain, alleluia, uh, Dana was awarded a CBE in the 2018 Honours List. So welcome, Dana. Great. Um, thank you very much. Yeah, thank you. Now, um, I think we've got to start with the COVID question, which it's been an unprecedented year of challenges and turmoil. What has 2020 been like for hyperoptic? Uh, what priorities have you focused more on because of the pandemic and what have you done differently for staff? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. And I think it's, it's a challenge um, for, for CEOs across the world um, to, to understand both how you balance the business implications, uh, but, but also how do you keep your staff safe? And, and I think personally, uh, especially given that we were a business that was marked as, as a key, key workers, uh, given uh, the installation and upkeep of, of fiber technology and, and telecoms generally, that meant that throughout the pandemic, we had uh, many of our engineers uh, out uh, on the streets uh, in, in fact, even going into customers' homes. And um, it was absolutely crucial to me that the entire organization understood the, the priority around the health and safety of, of our engineers, but also of our customers. So we very quickly put in place, you know, making sure that we had the right PPE for people, making sure that we had uh, the right welfare as well. We, we forget that when everything locked down, that meant there was less access to hand-washing facilities, toilet facilities for the engineers that were 
that were out on the street. So we had to quickly make sure that we could provide that for them. Um, and, and of course, making sure that we had the right communications with our customers to ensure that if we were booking an engineer visit, it had to be uh, mm -hmm. without their displaying any symptoms or being COVID positive, et cetera, et cetera. So I think from the, the obviously we always care about the health and safety of, of our staff, but never so predominantly from day-to-day -day activities. And that's that's that was the key change. You know, the next thing was really about making sure that anything we had to do to keep the network going. And thankfully we, we didn't have any issues, uh, mainly because it was a new network. Uh, we, we didn't see any uh, capacity constraints. So we were able to fulfill all the capacity uh, that people were demanding, but wanting to make sure that we didn't leave anyone in the lurch for the also important working from home and, and, and yeah. dealing with you know schooling at home, which I know really flustered so many people. Um, we did have impact to our, our customer base because much of our customers being in urban areas uh, mean that we had uh, students returning home, we had people with second homes that returned uh, to their first homes, be that in another country or uh, perhaps out of the cities. And we wanted to make sure that we created a good environment, even for those customers that had to leave us for, for whatever reason. Um, we're really pleased to see um, many of the kind of COVID, excuse me, impacts with respect to the financials of the business. We're all catching back up again, obviously. Um, we are, I don't know if luck is the right word, but we are offering a service that if anything has, has been proven to be even more in demand than it was before COVID. So I truly feel for those that um, unfortunately have had uh, such a hard time uh, since March, be it the hospitality industry, travel industry, et cetera. So um, from our perspective, the other key thing that we did is, is we updated all of our in-building installation approaches. We made sure that we were able to give uh, best communications to residents about what we were doing, how we were doing it, when we were gonna do it, um, and also um, coming up with technology that would allow us to minimize our time uh, within uh, a building or at least floor by floor. So uh, uh, being really thoughtful about how we could evolve our practices in order to keep in mind the, the COVID changes that were required. And that's actually been great uh, in terms of how that's enabled us to retain and expand upon the work that we're doing, for example, today, when although there is a lockdown in place, we mm -hmm. are still able to do the works that we're doing. And we've continued to evolve that to make sure that there's safety for the residents of the buildings. And we continue to make sure that people uh, get the best possible service they can. That's great to hear. I think um, uh, back in September, we ran you know, our London Tech Week events and we featured four companies based in the borough in the kind of in the tech sector. And it's interesting you know, some of these companies were much smaller and some of a similar size. It's very much a case of how COVID has forced people to actually accelerate plans that somebody said, you know, this was going to be a three-year rollout and all of a sudden I've done it in six months. And, you know, it's, it's, and I suppose those are the stories are some of the good stories coming through in the midst of um, some difficulty, well, a lot of difficulty. Um, can I move on to, um, the ambitions for broadband in this country and you're very you know as i said you got your mbe because of the work you had done contributing to gigabyte britain but i dare say we're not quite where we want to be and the government has you know great ambition for full fiber connectivity but there's a perception that we lag behind you know the baltic states asia 
And I suppose the question to you, is the perception right? What can the government learn from other countries? And there's something around market structure because, you know, does the UK broadband market need restructuring? Have we got enough competition? So excellent questions. Um, we are definitely behind uh, other parts of the world. There's, there's yeah. no question about that. And, you know, it really, there's, there's different opinions uh, on this topic. Uh, for the government, the, the focus uh, had been on fiber to the cabinet uh, and allowing the focus for open region BT to continue to use uh, the copper that was already invested in the ground, but but make the next jump to uh, that fiber to the cabinet, which which brought up speed somewhat, and that that was a successful program in terms of the amount that was invested, the speed they were able to go at, and that it did create you know a four times uh, benefit to people in terms of their speeds. So a question that of course people in, in on my side of it say is well it wasn't fast enough right we we had an opportunity to focus on um, ignoring fiber to the cabinet and going directly to fiber to the premise which many of those other countries did and um, because of that the good news is it, it gave opportunity to companies such as myself uh, and, and others like it to to start what I would call this momentum around the importance of fiber which I think kick-started Virgin to up their speeds, and then which also kickstarted OpenReach. So we are definitely behind other places, um, and you know it's always easy with hindsight to to find blame of why didn't we do this or why didn't we do that. The extent of how much was the investor community ready to embrace the amount of investment that would have been required at that time would be hard to say, um, but uh, certainly there's no there's no lack of that now and with respect to competition you know there is definitely you know open reach is the incumbent there's no question about that virgin has now covered 55 percent of the country and they are both i would say finally making inroads in their move to to fiber and gigabit speeds having said that i don't think you can open up um be it a newspaper or a, a report on private equity deals to not see the number of new companies that are starting who have picked out their own niche of we're going to do small towns with beaches we're going to do you know rural mountain cities or you know or rural villages so it, it feels like there's a lot of people who are really uh, i would say devoted to to gigabit britain so the, the competition is there the question will be you know, are we sure that all the money that's going into the industry is going in in a way that will lead to a, a better uh, infrastructure for the company, for the country overall? Um, and, and I think it never helps, uh, sorry, it never hurts to have um, those entrepreneurs who, to a certain extent, you know, we were the entrepreneurs 10 years ago, and now there's others coming in. And I think that's great. I think we need that in the industry. And you know, some of them will survive and some of them won't. That's that's just mm. kind of life or, or they'll be uh, bought by others or, or, or others of the majority parties. But I do think that it's positive now. Um, and from that perspective, we're, we're certainly on the right track. I don't think we'll get to 100% by 2025. I, I think we'll, we'll get pretty close um, as many of the larger players and rural players talk about the real challenges will end up being in, in the rural areas and the communities that are far, far apart with uh, very low density of homes, because obviously that's the most uh, expensive areas 
to actually build to. The government is focusing on this, this final 20 to 30 percent. Um, and there's much discussion on, on how you define the 20 to 30 percent. But we, as a, an urban provider, aren't really engaging in that discussion. We're just getting on and building. Okay. Um, I wasn't. I was actually going to jump onto my next question, but I, but the one that has just come through the chat from Tanya is a youth unemployment crisis is looming. Will Hyperoptic continue to invest in young talent, however tough times get? And will you remain committed to diversity inclusion of all kinds? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, we um, we we've literally been talking about uh, how we uh, really scale up our apprentice program over the last couple of weeks mm -hmm. and discussions with other uh, channels that allow us to connect with uh, youth who are looking for employment. I mean, what we do is something that um, we, we hope becomes a place where the many who have potentially lost their jobs from other industries, if, if they so choose an enjoyment of, of digging streets and getting mucky, then, then this is a good place to be. We also have built up our own internal training programs, which enable us to have people join us who have absolutely the right attitude, the, the, the will, the capacity, and, and the intent uh, and from our part. Now, we haven't put all these programs uh, in place yet, but they are absolutely critical to us. Um, for those of you anywhere close to the industry will know that with all this investment pouring in, there is going to be a shortage of skilled uh, labor, people that know how to um, splice fiber, people that know how to get down into chambers and you know clear ducts and uh, things of that nature. And we're, we're happy to do our part to create a, a funnel for those people who are ready, willing to be trained. Um, and we have a, a very large diversity of of people within our engineering staff. We, we do have fewer women than we would like. Um, that I think is, is the nature of, uh, of the people that tend to apply for those types of jobs, but we're, we're, we're happy uh, to take any women that want to join in in the fun as well. Okay, um, I'm gonna take one last question from the chat before I go back to my original questions. And that's, this is from Leslie. And again, it's on the talent point. Uh, which is how do you see people 40 plus or even 50 plus joining you and what can they do for you? Well, I'm in the second category. So I, I can say that we, we absolutely are not ageist. Um, I, I, was, I was in the first category when we started the company, but have now proudly moved to the second category. Um, you know, we continue to look for expertise across the company. Um, so I, I would say, well, we may not have junior engineers who fall within those categories. We, we, we do not stop people from uh, being willing to, to you know, go into our training programs and, and become street engineers or in-building engineers. Um, but more importantly, as we've grown as a company, as the competition heats up, as we extend our addressable market, you can appreciate all the different skills that we need um, that come with uh, the wisdom of uh, age which I am happy to support because obviously, as I said, I'm already in the second category. So we're, we're not ageist in, in, in any uh, sense. Okay, thank you. Um, so that's where we are today. Can we just take you back, you know, 10 years or so, which is um, you co-founded Hyperoptic with uh, Boris Ivanovich. And how did you both decide that you wanted to start a business together? So um, we knew each other from university days. So we're, we, we 
we've known each other for more years than we haven't known each other. And uh, having pictures from those days, we can easily see how much we've, we've aged, getting back to being in the second category on the previous picture. Yeah. But, um, and, and my background, as you rightly uh, went through when we were on the call, is I came from a, a systems engineering approach. So working for uh, Oracle early days, doing system integration programs, uh, joining uh, Sapient as a startup, so before it went public, and I'm actually in London uh, because I came over here in 98 to help start their UK business and then ran uh, their Germany business for a while, et cetera, et cetera. So, so Boris and I kept uh, friends and in touch over the years, and it was actually um, he who went started first, I would say, down the entrepreneurial path. Um, as, as a matter of fact, Sapient did a, a website for one of his startup companies, so it was a, a, a always these things kind of bring together. And then um, essentially got to the point where through a, a, I think it was a private equity company that he was working for, had then took on an operational role at a broadband company in, in Sweden where they were early days, so 2000 to 2004, doing fiber to the building, uh, fiber to the cabinet, so all the different types of things. And he then sold that company uh, in 2004. And it was, um, about two weeks after he'd sold that company that he gave me a call. I thought it was just a friendly, how are you call, but I didn't realize until the end of the call, he had a bit of an ulterior motive, which was, hey, that was really fun. And you know, the UK is so far behind. How about we start up a company, a, a telco company in, in the UK in London and you run it. And um, I said, sure. And basically that was B Broadband, which we founded in 2005 which was one of the first local loop on bundlers. We were the first ones to offer an up to 24 meg product in 2005, and we sold that to O2 in 2006. So that was my real, uh, I would say, taste of the entrepreneurial wine. And I would say it is something that uh, if any of you have, have had an opportunity to taste, you appreciate it, it is quite an opportunity to get real satisfaction out of hard work and labor. It's, it's obviously quite different from being at a large company and usually people fall into one or the other. Uh, and I found, uh, especially after spending some time on O2, which is, a, which is a great company, so it's by no means any indication that O2 is, is, is not, uh, but I found myself really eking for the opportunity to to go back to starting something from scratch again. And as, as I talked to when we were doing our fundraising, you know, it starts with two people in a spreadsheet and, and that's it. And that's, um, that's essentially the, the entrepreneurial spirit of, of the confidence that you can take this spreadsheet and, and turn it into reality. And how has your relationship changed as, as the company's grown, you know, from two people in a spreadsheet to 600 and a boardroom and <laughs> no, very good question, and and that is probably as a as an entrepreneur one of the hardest things to evolve. Um, and first of all, we're about uh, thirteen hundred people now, so we have grown even beyond. I'm not sure the the stats that were provided, but so it's quite a, a number of people. Majority of those people are engineers, and it does change absolutely. And um, it's it's really interesting because in some ways we learned the importance of, of process. And when you're a small company, when everyone sits in the same room, everyone knows what's going on. You know, there's yeah. chatter to everyone in the room. You're all sitting in that one room. So there, there's, there's no need for process diagrams or training or anything like that. 
And it's only as you grow and realize you've brought on all these people, but now you have to tell them how to do it and what way and in what time and how are we going to track, are they doing what we think they're doing? Because we're, we're no longer in the same room. So I think um, it's it's been a, a learning and growing experience for me personally and, and obviously for everyone in the company. And I think the trick is always maintaining the agility and entrepreneurial spirit of, you know, we can do this, we are going to do something new, we're going to continue to challenge, we're going to attack a new addressable market, but at the same time needing to put in place uh, the structure, the processes, the systems that you don't need when you're, you know, 20 people in the room with a shared spreadsheet. My next question, and I think you've almost answered it, but I just want to check, which is what are the, what is the key lesson you think entrepreneurs need to learn? And it sounds as though if you're growing a company, you're talking about, you know, maintain that agility kind of mindset or, uh, but remember, you've got to add in process. But before that, what, what do you think were the key lessons if you've, you know, you've started a company, there are five of you, you're probably going to grow to 15 in the next eight months. You know, what, what, what are the key lessons for you at that particular point, just to bring you back? So I think there's, there's two things. One is um, have agreement on your, on your end goal. And, you know, what is your purpose? And, you know, there's so many business books that talk about the importance of, especially recent books that talk about the importance of, of defining that purpose beyond just a number on a spreadsheet. And it, it is really important because it creates um, a, a shared directional system so that decisions can be made independently, but with the faith that we're all moving still in the same direction. So if you know what you're creating, what your purpose is, then mm -hmm. sometimes you are able to be a lot more efficient and agile. I think the second thing is uh, about people. You know, I think you, you always need to hire the best people but as you grow, the role of any particular individual changes and the structure of the company may need to change. And so it's, it's getting the right people on the bus, but also recognizing when if your bus has to take a different trip, you may need to change the people that are on the bus. And I think that's really hard because as a, as a small company, you create very famil familiar relationships and people become your best friends. And mm -hmm. uh, you still have to remember that you are there to run a business. And um, from that perspective, you, you may need to shift. But people is always the most important thing uh, as is, is proven time and time and again in my experiences. And I think, you know, touching on that small to large point, can we move on to company culture? Um, so how would you describe the company culture at Hyperoptic and how has it evolved and what are the kind of um, perhaps core, core values, core practices that you have sought to preserve in so much as that is possible, preserve within Hyperoptic as you've grown? Yeah, so I come having had my time with, with Sapient that very much was driven by core values. I'm a firm believer in the importance of defining values and having a culture that is articulated and supported through various, whether it's processes and et cetera, and such, something that we speak about, something that we celebrate. And we have, we have um, changed a bit over time. I mean, it obviously isn't always the first thing you do when you start up a company to say, here's our core values and draw a lovely picture and decide how it's gonna be in your hiring practices and your promotion practices. 
but uh, we have over time put um, more process behind that. And so, for example, I'll, I'll give you a bit of a story. Our first kind of core values was uh, it was it was called Rise, um, and and basically it was about responsibility, intelligence, zeal, and excellence. And as an exec team, we got together and said, it's missing something. It sounds too big company. And we said, I know it's, it's missing agility. So then we, we turned it into a rise. So agility, responsibility, intelligence, um, zeal, and excellence. And we continue to evolve it. But you see all the time people going around, I just want to commend some real arise you know, behaviors and someone went above and beyond. And how do we work together as a team really intelligently? And so we, we see that people hear about our values when they're part of the hiring process, part of our induction process. And in fact, we're now rolling out a, a capability model, which includes a value orientation of what we expect from people as they move up within the organization. So career pathways for all the different uh, disciplines within the company and, and how we expect uh, for someone, for example, to demonstrate agility at different different timings of their career and in different uh, disciplines. How do you, I mean, in this very strange world, how do we, you know, you've had everybody's, a lot of people have been at home for the last seven months or so. How does, how do you, com, com, how do you continue to imbue your actions with company culture or how, how do you continue to talk about it? Because a lot of it is, you know, socialized, you talk to people, you're in the same environment and now in cases you're not. So, it, I may be the wrong person to ask that question to because I, I have actually been coming to the office throughout the period of time. Having said that, I am one of the few. So the question is still absolutely relevant. And, and, I, and I have to say, I'm an office person, uh, meaning my entire career, I, 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 I never desired to work from home. I, I don't, you know, it's not a bad thing or begrudge anyone that does. But for me, I, I work best in the office. I, you know, home for me is home and, and office is, is office. But um, I personally have understood how that people can be effective from working from home. And in fact, you know, we've, uh, we've interviewed, hired, inducted uh, people in senior levels in the organization all online. And I have to say, it's, it's, if you had asked me a year ago, would I ever do that? Or is it possible? I would say absolutely not. Um, and, you know, part of what's helped with the culture is that we have a, a, a person in our people team who is responsible for culture and she works very strongly with the head of talent acquisition and the head of training to make sure that as we bring people on board, we talk about culture, as we take people through an induction and training programs and it's, so it becomes very much about who we are. Um, I still have to say I, I Personally, maybe it's because I am in that second category of the, the ages that were talked about earlier that I still prefer, you know, standing in front of a whiteboard, even socially distanced, to, to be able to solve a problem. But I, I do see the, the will of people to, to evolve uh, in this different way of working to be incredible. I do think um, we will never be a company that says 100% people should work from home. I know there are some companies out there who, who, who have done that, whether it's to save office space or somehow jump on a new age bandwagon, I'm not sure. You know, will we in the future expect uh, flexibility for people? Absolutely. Uh, you know, I've certainly learned that people don't have to be in the office 24 by seven. 
and also recognizing, you know, such a large portion of our office are, are field engineers. They're never in the office. In fact, they really don't want to come into the office. And I think the thing that I'm, I'm struggling with this year is we always do a kickoff event in January. So I'm still, still in my head membering, you know, standing uh, before, I think it was about seven or 800 people at our event. And, it, and that to me is really an opportunity for people mm. to remind ourselves of, of the diversity of the company, both in individuals and in discipline. I mean, we, we have people who are, you know, PhDs, and then we have people who absolutely love being in, in exactly the environment I talked about earlier, you know, in, in the pits and getting in there and getting, getting all mucky. So it's really diversity of, of employees and watching people talk to each other. And we can't do that this year. Um, I still try to get out and, and talk to people on the ground, but I think it is a yeah. challenge for us and for other companies to understand how you maintain a sense of unity in a company when, when people don't get those opportunities. I think we're doing pretty well, but I think as many people put into the chat, um, I also have a wish for a global <laughs> vaccine for 2020 to be gone and, and for us to resume to some amount of the, the social behaviors that it makes us who we are as people. Okay, thank you. Um, so we're going to back and um, I said the, at the outset it was uh, very difficult to find any personal information about you so um, so this is the <laughs> so we're going to play psychologist for a second Please. and can we talk about your early years what was your childhood like and what were your formative experiences where did you grow up you know all the stuff so I grew up in um, Huntington New York on Long Island I try to do the accent now and then hopefully it's, it's, it's gone for the most part um, but, uh, so my, um, my upbringing, I was a, a sole, a single child of, of parents who had previous, uh, children from previous marriages. So I had, I guess, the benefit of being the attention, uh, uh, you get as a single child, but also my parents were mature enough as parents to maybe not overparent me, if that makes sense. Um, but I think that my mom was, uh, especially, uh, in, in, she, she really didn't accept any male-female uh, differences. So I remember coming home from the neighbor, I think I was five or six, and saying, oh, mommy, I think I want to be a nurse. And of course, at that time, there were, that was the majority were women and, and you know, doctors were men and women were nurses. And she said, why do you want to be a nurse, a nurse and why not a doctor? And I said, oh, good point. I'll be a doctor. So she, she definitely created an environment of uh, I could do whatever I wanted. There, there were no, nothing should stop me if I wanted it. And I think on my father's side, he was, um, to quote earlier, your comment on, on the question from about IPs, he was a bit of a nerd. And so we had computers in the house from, you know, very early days. I remember he, he very much, um, you know, he wrote books on computer languages. And this was, you know, back in the in the 70s. So from that perspective, I had, you know, early association and, and comfort with technology and, and a mom who said I could do whatever I wanted to do. And, and part of it was uh, also, I think, um, the, the university that I was lucky enough to, to go to, um, because so many of the people I know from university are actually entrepreneurs and have done amazing and very varied things uh, across the world. So I think, um, while at the same time, I don't think a university makes a person, I do think that the ability to, to 
network and be in an environment that really is, is a, you know, it's a research, you know, MIT is a research organization that pushed technology, but also what can you do with it? It, it really wasn't just an academic institution. So I, I think that had a large part to my kind of openness and willingness to, to accept and even perhaps seek out the, the ambiguity and the opportunities of, of doing more. Um, can I, I mean, the, the MIT point is interesting because you, you're, you're actually now in a borough where, you know, Imperial College has got an increasing presence. Mm -hmm. And I always have to explain, you know, why has a leading world university like a, a Imperial, you know, partnered with a uh, borough council to create upstream, you know, and I give the whole vision and actually the best, the thing which encapsulates it best is we always say what MIT did for Boston, Massachusetts in terms of regeneration and everything is what we hope that Imperial will do for Hammersmith and Fulham and in particular White City. So the MIT point has actually got a bit of a read across today. Um, I've actually got a question via privately in the chat. So just hang on, let me just try and get it. Sorry. Um, what do you think the biggest challenge has been in your career? What has been the biggest challenge in my career? Um, I think it's a really interesting question because I'm probably one of the few people who won't uh, have had a path to CEO, meaning I don't recall as a child or even when I started working, you know, mm -hmm. a, a sheet that said, you know, here's how I want to do it and what I want to do. So to a certain extent, becoming CEO in the position that I'm in today was, was not planned. Yeah. And so I think the challenge as we've now just turned over 10 years at Hyperoptic is, well, you may not have been planned, but, but here you are. And how do I become, you know, if, if I'm not already the, the, a better CEO or the best CEO that I, that I can mm -hmm. be. And it is, and it is something that needs work. Um, and I think I tend to be someone that focuses on, um, you know, the logic, the numbers, you know, how, how do we continue to strategize over the long term? But as far as personal yes. career development, that's not something I tended to focus on over time. Um, so I'm, I'm pleased that I try to find a balance um, in, in how to do that. So I want to be able to continue to evolve as a leader, both mm -hmm. within my company and within the industry, but I, I don't naturally take time to do that. So I, I don't, you know, I know a lot of people have mentors and coaches and I absolutely mm -hmm. believe there's lots of value in that. But I think for me, it's, it's learning how, how to ensure that I do spend enough time in evolving myself to make sure that I can continue to do my job at, at the best possible level. The next question, are there any other books you'd recommend, you know, people read um, either for business per, you know, kind of professional reasons or for personal insights? Um, well, I am reading uh, Good to Great and rereading it because I, I did read it on, early on into my career. And, and the next book that's, that's on my shelf is The Built to Last. And I think it is, uh, these are business books by yep. all means. Um, and then for, for on a personal front, and I don't, of course, know who on the call has children, doesn't have children, but the book yep. that I found um, really helpful, which is in some ways, I, I think it's called, it's called How to Talk So Kids Will Listen and How to Listen So Kids Will Talk. And it, it, yes, it is meant to be a parenting book, but actually it's emotional intelligence, it's NLP, it's how do you listen to other people and create an environment 
where you create relationships that can be fruitful. So if you have young kids, you can read that version. I think there's a version for teens, but fundamentally that's what it's about. It's, it's not about judging, it's understanding what people's interests are and trying to negotiate and compromise to get to win-win scenarios. And I have to say, that's, that's my general belief about the world. I always look for win-win, even win-win-win scenarios. And um, I think that's even harder in today's society and certainly harder when we're all in our different rooms. But um, those, are, those are my suggestions for a business view and then a, a more emotional or, or people relationship view. Um, final question before we wrap up. Um, it's three o'clock. Um, what, what does a typical day look like for you and how do you carve out time to think and what do you do for leisure, if anything? Well, yeah, on the last one, that's really tricky because my normal hobby is traveling. <laughs> so planning trips, um, you know, whether that be a, a kid-friendly trip to Disney World or, you know, we were actually planning this past summer to go to Peru and, and Machu Picchu. So obviously just the whole planning and excitement and picking hotels, that, that would be my normal hobby. So I've done a bit less of that recently. Yeah. But um, as far as, you know, typical day, honestly, I, I will be, I'll, I'll bring one of my kids to school in the morning. So I switch off because I have one in secondary school, one in primary school. Um, so I'll, uh, for, for the, the record, uh, I am both a business owner in Hammersmith and Fulham, but a resident of Hammersmith and Fulham. And from that perspective, I am very close by. So really pleased to support both the borough and Imperial College. Be very happy for my children to go to Imperial College as well, but they still have quite a few years for that. Um, but typically we'll start out the day. I, I work out first thing in the morning, you know, try to have a healthy breakfast, wake my children up, bring one to school, uh, and then walk into the office uh, in meetings most of the day with combination of doing one-on-ones and, and group, uh, group meetings as well. And uh, essentially, when do I have time to think? Well, I do that both on the, uh, the walk-in and the walk home uh, during lunch, but also I do try to take time out, often not enough to make sure that I think, and I have to admit, I'm uh, absolutely um, the, the, the typical shower thinker. So when I say I came up with the idea in the shower, everyone that works for me knows that actually that, that oftentimes is, is true. For some reason, maybe it's the, the steam, everything comes together and all of a sudden I, I, I pull together all these various things and yeah. come up with an idea and bring it to the table. So I don't know if that counts as thinking, but uh, there you go. About as close as I think the steam clarifies your thoughts, strangely enough. <laughs> I'm going to go with that story as well. So um, I, that brings us to the end of the session. But Dana, thank you so much for your time. It's been lots of good fun and really appreciate uh, all your insight this afternoon. Thank you, everyone, for coming too.